This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. They needed to shift Ayurveda from being a shamanic medical system to being something that was more of what we can call a practical, eclectic kind of medical system that would employ all sorts of substances and actions to assist the organism to remove wastes from it, to rehabilitate the disturbed prana, Welcome to Living with Reality, a podcast featuring archived teachings and modern conversations with Dr. Robert Svoboda, brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Living with Reality explores Ayurveda and other wisdom traditions of India, which Dr. Svoboda has been studying for nearly 50 years. For more information, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dr. Svoboda. That's D-R-S-V-O-B-O-D-A. Hello and welcome to Living with Reality. I'm Paula Crossfield. I am one of Dr. Sabota's main students and I'm also a Vedic astrologer and business coach. And I have been helping Dr. Sabota with the vision behind his media for almost 10 years now. So I've been hosting this podcast um, for almost over a year. And I want to share with you this awesome talk that he gave about the origins of Ayurveda and um, the difference between classical and the Vedic era and what happened to humanity as we moved more into settled areas, into cities, and how that impacted our health. And so he talks about a specific moment where a conference was held And the wise people got together and decided how they could best help humans in this new context. So I will not spoil the rest for you. Please do take a listen. And if you're interested in studying with Dr. Spoda, he has over 200 hours worth of courses now available at drsvoboda.teachable.com slash courses. You'll see courses there on different topics related to Ayurveda, to Jyotisha or Vedic astrology, um, and so many other topics. So keep an eye out. There's new courses coming every month. Okay, we hope you enjoy this discussion. One of the noteworthy things about Indian culture is that there's a substantial divide between 
the Vedic era and the classical era. The Vedic era possessed Ayurveda and Jyotish and a number of other disciplines associated with the Veda, and they were all meant for facilitating the recitation of the Veda and the performance of Vedic sacrifices. The classical era took those disciplines and extended their scope, their purview, to society in general. So in one way, the dichotomy that exists between the Vedic era and the classical era is a dichotomy of a focus on people actually performing the activities described in the Veda and a focus on people performing activities that were derived from that original Vedic focus but now might not, in fact, usually did not focus on the Veda itself. If we begin with Ayurveda, we find that Ayurveda in the Vedic era, and what we know about it is substantially what we know from the Atarva Veda, because Ayurveda is regarded as being an Upaveda, the secondary body of knowledge that is associated with, derived from, and practiced along with the Atharva Veda. Each Veda has its Upaveda, and for the Atharva Veda, the fourth of the four Vedas, it is Ayurveda. It is, as far as I'm concerned, apparent. Other people surely do not agree with me, but it is apparent to me that the way that Ayurveda was practiced in the Vedic era was very much as shamanic medicine is practiced by some, if not many, traditional cultures today, even today. It is, or rather was, a shamanic kind of medicine. There was an emphasis on the personal power of the shaman, and some people believe the word shaman comes from the word sharma, which now is a a popular surname for Brahmins in North India, but originally was sharman and indicated a particular kind of knowledgeable individual. So there... That kind of medicine focuses on the personal power of the shaman, that shaman's ability to understand the disturbance in the individual as a misalignment of energies, and very commonly a disturbance that has been inflicted upon that individual by disembodied entities, whether they are perhaps spirits of diseases or forces that may have been unloosed upon them by some malevolent uh, planetary position or a malevolent sorcerer or or some other source of malevolence. And once this understanding of how the individual's energy had been disturbed, 
the shaman would employ his or her own energy and the energy of whatever ritual might be prescribed in this context and the energy uh, commonly of one or perhaps a few substances, often herbal substances and sometimes other things, but one or a few substances into which the prana, the shakti of the shaman, and also the shakti of whatever positive forces that the shaman had conjured up could be placed. So once that energy, that shakti, and the prana could be put onto that substance, that substance would act as a vehicle into and and in that vehicle, it would be transmitted into the individual. And once it reached into the individual, that combined, of course, as always, with the faith of the individual in the shaman and in the process, uh, those things would combine to transform the pattern of energy into the in- inside the individual. And the result, hopefully, would be a relief uh, from that condition. And it would appear, from what we can tell from the uh, Atharvaveda, that this was a fairly well-developed system in the sense that there were many different substances that had Atharvavedic hymns associated with them, and there were many different uh, ways of working with these substances and with mantras, etc., And that system seemed to have continued on until the Vedic system itself started to reflect less effectively the awareness of the community in which it was functioning. And this, no doubt, took place over quite an extended period of time, but by by a period of somewhere between 4,000 and 3,000 years ago, and it was starting to become noteworthy. And after 3,000 years ago, it started to become uh, the, the, the rule, rather, uh, the norm, rather than the exception. So it was approximately 2,500 years ago until 2,000 years ago, roughly. It was during that time that tremendous transformations happened in all the different forms of knowledge that had been generated by the, uh, the, the system of knowledge that was the Veda. Uh, and, of course, Veda, the word itself, basically means knowledge. It comes from the root vid, which means to know. And this was spurred along, without doubt, by the appearance of Gautama, the Buddha, and Mahavir, the Jina, the Jain, who were actively engaged in creating new perspectives on reality that did not focus on Vedic ritualism. And how exactly all these pieces fit together, we don't know. But what we do know is that During that period of approximately 2,500 to 2,000 years ago, 
there was tremendous evolution in the in Ayurveda, in Jyotish, in Vastu, in all of the Indian classical sciences. And there is some reason to believe that what was the case in Ayurveda probably was the case in certain other things, as, as other uh, uh, vidyas, other forms of knowledge as well. And that was that there was an awareness that human beings had changed. So, for example, in the Charaka Samhita, the most well-known and in some ways the fundamental text of Ayurveda that we have that still exists, there is a description of a conference that took place in a forest long ago. Now, of course, the conference may or may not have taken place because it may have represented the combining together uh, in, in a report of a number of different conferences that happened in different places at different times. We have no idea about that. But the premise that the conference was called for and the conclusions are unambiguous. The, the, the conference was called to address the important question, whatever is it that we shall do with human beings who have elected to live in cities and towns. So cities and towns in small numbers had existed before this period, of course, in the Indus Valley situation, uh, civilization, in uh, Egypt, in Sumeria, etc. But they were, they were not as stable as they started to become about 3,000 years ago. Then the serious urbanization began in the Indian subcontinent and in other parts of the world. And the invitees to this conference were Maharshis and Mahatmas, and that means they were spiritual beings who were, of course, not living in cities and towns. They had their own ashrams in perhaps the desert or the, the rainforest or the, the, some other jungle somewhere, and they did their own researches by creating a stable island of harmony around themselves in which they could explore different realms of consciousness and, and different dimensions, different states of being, and so on. And they understood back then that the Ayurveda, as practiced in the Veda, the shamanic medicine, worked very well for people who had direct perception of, all day long, alignment with nature. And the reality that they were being forced to come to grips with is that around this period, it started to be the case that thanks to agriculture, which had permitted the accumulation of food, people were banding together in larger numbers in order to be able to protect the food and to be able to collaborate together to build even bigger organizations and structures than had been possible when they were living in smaller numbers. If you're familiar with the concept 
that is currently generally called Dunbar's number. That means that physiologically, your brain only has the capacity to really know personally 150 people at a time. That's an, an average, more or less. Some people can actually know 250. Some people can't even know 50. But on the average, the human being can only practically be inter, positively interacting in the lives of other human beings in a group if that group is of the size of 150. And that's why even today, in most traditional societies, you don't find villages that are more than 150 people because otherwise everyone in the village can't know everyone else in the village. Once you get into a city, Dunbar's number is, of course, no longer going to act in the way that it had acted when you were in a village and you could know everybody. By definition, you can't know everyone in a city. And right there, right at that point, there is a difference, a change in the way that people not only view their environment, but view themselves. When you were living in a village and you knew everyone, you viewed yourself as a member of that community. Yes, you were an individual, but you were to some degree, even more than being an individual, you were a member of that community. Once you get into a place where you were not able to know everyone, then the emphasis on individuality becomes reinforced and starts to become greater and greater. And therefore, of course, we've got to the position where we are now, where individuality in its extreme form encourages people to do everything they they seem like they might feel they want to do for the purpose of self-aggrandizement, self-actualization, or whatever else they want to call it. And that, only when it is kept under careful control, is something that has a very different effect on the organization of society. And the results of that organization uh, practical results as it affects those who live in it and who live around it. So these Maharshis and Mahatmas were getting together and they were asking themselves, what exactly are we going to do about this? People are no longer living in small groups. They're not going to know one another. So that's a big problem. They're not going to know one another. And when that happens, they won't be able to rely on one another. They will be suspicious of one another. There will be there, there will not be the same sort of ability to exchange awareness and alignment and prana with one another. So right there, there is going to be a reduction in the vitality of the individual because humans are a hyper-social species. And one of the things that is most detrimental to the longevity of a human is isolation, unless you happen to be the kind of anchorite or other person who really loves to be on his or her own. So the Marshis and Mahatmas were aware of this and they were concerned because right there, they were that, that necessity to be on one's own more than before. Yes, you, you might still have your family and your clan, but you were surrounded by people you didn't know. You were surrounded by the unknown. This creates fear. Fear creates aggravation of vata. And aggravation of vata disturbs prana. And prana, of course, is what you need in order to be healthy. 
So the Maharishis and the Mahatmas, right away, they were concerned about the whole situation. But in addition to that, they were concerned about an even more practical aspect of that situation, practical in this sense meaning mundane and related to the material world. And that was the fact that when everybody lives together in a city, the back at that time especially, it was not unusual for the city to be walled off because you were trying to protect your food from those people who thought that they would like to come and help themselves to it that might not be part of your city. And so when things are walled off, it makes it more difficult for individuals to be able to keep their hygiene at the same level that it might have been existed when one was moving around in a relatively unpopulated area and could keep the things that were potentially polluting away from the things that you did not want polluted. So now you had waste products, which in the past might have simply deteriorated somewhere that where they would not have caused any kind of problem. But now these waste products were inside the city, they were accumulating, and the question became one as, as is uh, the question that we uh, suffer from uh, or continuously have to ask ourselves even today, and that is, where do we throw the trash? So in the very fact that all sorts of, and because humans by this time had domestic animals also, there was human manure, domestic animal manure, and of course there were rats and birds and other things trying to come and eat the food that we had accumulated. So there were wild animals also wandering around, and they were also contributing their excreta. And all of these things had to be removed. Now, it is true that in Mohenjo-Daro, for example, there was a sewer system, but that was a long time ago, and people had forgotten how to manage the sewer system, and many places didn't have enough water for that, and the result was that you had a lot of waste that was accumulated in these cities. And if the waste is accumulating in the city, the principles of Vastu tell us that if something is accumulating in the space in which you live, something is going to be accumulating inside you as a kind of a balance uh, because that's the way things happen. You're always going to be reflective to some degree or another of your environment. And so the Maharshis and Mahatmas were well aware that wastes and literal physical waste, not just, not just aggravated or, or, or knotted up energy, but physiological material world waste was accumulating in the bodies of the people living in these cities and towns. And moreover, the, the, the convenient thing about living in a city and town is that you can communicate more easily with other human beings, and this facilitates cooperation. However, it is also the case that when things are communicated more easily that are good, things are also communicated more easily that are not so good. And that includes not just rumors, but also communicable diseases, which are communicated from one person to another. So the Maharshis and Mahatmas understood that there had been big changes happening, and they needed to 
shift Ayurveda from being a shamanic medical system to being something that was more of what we can call a a, a, a more a practical, eclectic kind of medical system that would employ all sorts of substances and actions to assist the organism to remove wastes from it, to rehabilitate the disturbed prana that was being aggravated from vata, not just because of fear of outsiders, but also of having to move around in an environment in which you were, it was not the natural environment in which the prana is flowing freely, but it was a human created environment in which prana was not flowing freely. And the that in itself was creating aggravation, generalized aggravation of vata in all of these people living in these urban areas. And it's for this matter, uh, for this reason, that the Marshis and Mahatmas came up with this concept of Ayurveda as an empirical medical system, as one in which you evaluated what was happening, you employed a theory, and they, uh, the theory of the many theories, the, the theory of the doshas, the three doshas according to Charaka, and the four doshas including blood according to Sushruta, the surgeon. And this was an important attempt to, to impose order upon incipient chaos. And why this is significant is because when you're living out as a semi-nomad, you're living out in a, a place where things are natural, and perhaps you're not even a semi-nomad. Perhaps you're just established, but you're out in the middle of an, a, a natural area. You have the order that is be, has been created and is being maintained by nature. It may not look like order to a modern human eye, but it is completely orderly. The various different species are interacting with one another in a particular way, and the prana is found its locations where it can flow, the ways in which it, the, the places where it can be amplified and the places where it is constricted. And uh, the, the seasons come and the seasons go. And there is, it's not a static, perfect, unchanging harmony. It's an ongoing harmony, but one that has reached a kind of balance because the prana is always attempting to generate harmony because that promotes the vitality of living beings and prana is interested in creating life. That is its agenda. So there was already order in nature and the, the Vedic culture was focused on aligning itself with nature, maintaining an alignment with the help of the Vedic gods, no doubt, but with the help of those, with those Vedic deities, with those astral beings, that the humans, the astral beings, and, and the environment, nature itself, all were working together to establish a harmony. But as individuals moved into cities, 
this became more problematical because now they were in an area in which they were surrounded not by nature and many different species doing different kinds of things. They were now surrounded by humans doing human things. Yes, there were domestic animals. Yes, there were uh, other animals that were coming so that they could take advantage of humans in whatever way that they could. And but but the, practically speaking, these were all related to the humans. So now you're in an environment that is no longer a natural environment. You're no longer surrounded by nature. You're now surrounded by human beings and things that have been created by human beings, the products of human beings. It is this condition that we are in now, and it has only become dramatically increased in the past 3,000 years. It has not become substantially different. So in a situation like that, you have to arrange some kind of order. It has to be, you, you have to make sure that certain, in certain areas, certain things happen. And in those areas, other things do not happen. And the things that happen in uh, other areas do not happen where other things happen. So you, you have to now, in, instead of simply allowing nature to organize things, you have to start organizing things. And there started to become a concept of order. And that would not be the, stand, the order of nature per se. It would be order that was human-generated order. And perhaps the, the most fundamental uh, way of describing this difference between these two kinds of order is the, it's the difference between the curve and the straight line. The curve is the order in nature because if you look out, even a straight tree is not completely and utterly straight. There's always some kind of very slight bend in it, even if it appears to be from a distance completely straight. Everything is nature, in nature is curved. Prana always, whenever possible, moves in a curved fashion because when it moves straight on, then it becomes uh, afflicting to living beings. In the human concept, however, humans have the... They, they, there is a certain substantial awareness of the fact that there are boundaries. And we have taken this concept of the boundary and we've taken this concept of organization and we have converted it into the straight line, which is something that characteristically does not exist in nature, but has become the chief focus of the urbanized human. Now, once this happened, there started to become an attitude, and it's an attitude that still remains among certain individuals, an attitude that human order was superior to natural order. And there started to become an attitude that we must lay out our cities in nice, tidy grids, and Vastu is very much about grids. And there is a lot to be said about grids, particularly in the home, and there is a certain amount to be said about grids in the city. But there was a tendency to focus on the grid system as, be, as representing order and everything outside the grid system, that is to say everything in nature, as representing chaos. And that was a fundamental difficulty that also arose as a result of urbanization. 
naturally you look around you and you see things are nice and tidy and you think, oh my God, out there in nature, things are not so tidy and our system is superior. In reality, of course, nature's system is superior in its own way. And when you start to, as now is the case among many people, believe that the human way of doing things is superior to the natural way of doing things, then you start paying attention to what nature can offer you and you start paying more attention to how you can organize nature. So it behooves us to remember that the while we we are living in the in a world in which more than 50% of the planet lives in an urban context in towns and cities and megacities for that matter and whenever you live in a situation that is urbanized you will automatically, simply because you're living there, have a tendency to think of it as being more organized than nature. But it is very desirable to remember that we need to align ourselves as best as possible, as best we can, get out into nature whenever we can, do things we can to support nature in whatever way we can, because it is the order in nature that is really the order that we as organisms that are being managed by Pran, uh, it is that order that is really maintaining our order. And our emphasis on the human attitude of and the human uh, perspective on order is one that has brought us to this serious position that we're in today. And if continued to be followed in the way that it has been in the past, will result in a very unhappy end for our species. So rather than that, let us go back to nature. Even though we can't all go back and live in nature, let us find ways to support nature and pray that nature will not stop supporting us. Om, om. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.